The following is a lecture by Dwight A. Pryor of the Center for Judaic Christian Studies, a ministry renewing the Christian mind by restoring to the church its lost Hebraic heritage. This material is copyrighted with all rights reserved. For more information about Dr. Pryor's ministry, please visit our website, jcstudies.com, or call us at 937-434-4550. Thank you, and Shalom. To summarize where we've just concluded, we declared that the gospel for Paul is more than the gospel of how you become a Christian. It's a gospel of what God is doing in the earth through his people and through his Messiah, his son. In other words, it is the gospel of God, which concerns his son, Jesus the Messiah. For Paul, Jesus is the long-promised and awaited Messiah of Israel, and in his death, burial, and resurrection, God acted decisively to show his righteousness, to defeat evil, sin, and death. And in the resurrection was the dawning of the prophetic new age, long promised. It began already, it's broken in, and will come to glorious consummation in the return of the king. So Yeshua for Paul is not just Israel's Messiah, he is king of the world, and more than that, he's king of the cosmos. And Paul sees himself in the role of a servant of Messiah by God's sovereignty set apart to be the bearer of good news, the proclaimer of the gospel, <coughs> calling the nations to the obedience of faith, and as he's going to reveal later in this mysterious process, God's actually going to bring Israel to its con. So for Paul, there is one God and one creator, and God's action through Messiah Jesus is the fulfillment of his promises to Abraham and the covenant that he has with Israel. And in fulfilling his promises to Abraham, he simultaneously reconciles the whole world, all nations, to himself. Which is to say, it's wonderfully multidimensional, this act of redemption that God's gospel proclaims. Three effects, three results. Number one, Israel is redeemed. Number two, humankind is redeemed. Number three, creation itself shall be redeemed. Now, it's extremely vital that we always be conscious of the very deep, abiding, thoroughgoing Jewish matrix of Paul's thought. Fortunately, today, this is widely acknowledged, in which Paul is seen as first and foremost operating within the Jewish matrix, not within a Hellenist one. But on the other hand, it is equally important that we not overlook the significance of Paul's Hellenistic context, because it was by God's intent that Paul take the Jewish gospel of God concerning his Messiah and transport it and communicate it to the Greco-Roman world, the Hellenistic world. Paul, in his engagement with Hellenism, is actively engaging paganism. But note this, he's doing so with a Jewish message. 
He doesn't water it down. He doesn't dilute. He doesn't transmute the Jewish Messiah and his Jewish message into some kind of Hellenistic mystery religion. He confronts the paganism of Rome with a Jewish Messiah and a Jewish gospel, speaking of a Jewish God. He did not have to transmute it into some other religion so Gentiles could consume it. To the contrary, he stood in very stark contrast to all forms of paganism, polytheism, pantheism. For him, there's but one God, the God of Israel, and that God has vindicated Israel in Messiah Jesus, and through Israel and Yeshua, he will extend his righteousness to the whole world. This is important because I think it's often assumed, and it's even maintained by some, that Paul's the founder of Christianity, that he took the seeds of this Jewish messianic movement, baked up a whole new religion, and based on a Hellenistic worldview. In fact, the, Hellen the, the Roman world was replete with every variety of religion you could imagine, including the mystery cults. So had Paul just created another Hellenistic religion, it would have had little impact. Certainly would not have been threatening, but it would have had little impact. Paul doesn't do that. He goes right into the Hellenistic world, and he confronts Caesar, he confront Ro confronts Rome, he confronts every form of paganism. He confronts every form of polytheism. Rome, as you probably know, accused the early believers in Yeshua of being atheists because they didn't believe in many gods. They only believed in one God and were willing to die for the sanctity of that one God's name. Now, Rome could easily accommodate your private religious experience as long as you also acknowledge that Caesar was Lord and indeed was divine because the, the emperor cult pervaded Roman society. It wasn't just something you would do one day a week. All of Roman life revolved around paganism, around the emperor cult and worship, sacrifices to idols, the food you, you ate came from the markets, left over from the sacrifices, so it was pervasive. Paul confronts that with the gospel of the God of Israel and his son, the Jewish Messiah. Because for Paul, this good news is inseparable from God's covenant with Abraham. You cannot divest the gospel, divest the gospel of its Jewish origins, its Jewish matrix, and its Jew. To do so is to do violence to Paul and to misread Romans. Now, Paul does critique <coughs> some aspects of his Judaism and the Judaism of some of his fellow believers, but he doesn't do so as an outsider. He does so from within, as one who continues within Judaism. In fact, as I've already suggested to you, I think the best model for understanding Paul with respect to Judaism is to think of Paul as a prophet, like Israel's prophets of old. They would critique the Jewish people and Jewish practices, but always from within the community, not outside of the community. So he was a prophet in his, in his mode of operation, as well as a messenger, a sent one, an apostle to the Gentiles. Which brings us to the heart of his, the content of his gospel of God. It's a gospel concerning the righteousness of God. The righteous. You'll notice verse 16 and 17 again, key verses, thematic scriptures for the whole of Romans. 
Paul bears no shame for this gospel. Shame, by the way, was a very powerful motivating factor in the Roman culture. And Paul says, there's no shame in this, even in our crucified Messiah. But the gospel is God's saving power to all who believe, first to the Jew, then to the Greek. For in it, in this gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. The word revealed here comes from the word apocalypsis, apocalyptic. It's disclosed. That which has been hidden in the past has now been made evident and disclosed. So we're looking at key concepts that we need to have in a proper orientation if we're going to read Romans with fidelity to the Jewish apostle who wrote this letter. And nowhere is this more urgent than in the issue of the righteousness of God. Now, we'll say much about this later, but I just want to touch upon it now. In Greek, dikaiosune, theos, the righteousness of God. Part of the problem in, in rightly understanding this word is English itself. In English, the Greek word dikaios from which you get dikaiosu, can be translated either as righteousness or as justice, the same word. Now, the problem arises from our, the origins of our English language. There are two principal sources that you have for English. First of all, you have the Old English, the Anglo-Saxon coming from the Germanic roots, and that is the source of the word righteous. As I mentioned in Old English, rightwise. It comes from the Anglo-Saxon background of English. But those of you who know anything about English history and Western civilization know that a decisive event happened on October 14th, 1066. What was that? What was that, Lucy? The Battle of Hastings. <laughs> in which actually for which we should all be grateful, uh, the influence of French culture came in to the English stream. And so you also have a lot of English words that have a French and or a Latin origin. French, of course, is related to Latin. So we've got these two streams, Anglo-Saxon, Germanic, Old English on the one side, and you've got the French, the Latin on the other side. Well, the English, the Old English, Anglo-Saxon translation of dikaios would be righteous, whereas the French would be justice. Now, that wouldn't be much of a problem, except in English, we can say righteous or righteousness or justice, but when it comes to the verb form, we run into a problem. Because in English, you cannot say to righteous someone. You can only say to justify them. And we don't realize in English that when we speak of justifying someone, we're saying exactly the same thing as when we say to righteous someone. It's the same word in Greek. But in English, you don't know that. Did any of you know this? You see, I mean, it's, it's, it's unknown to us. We never think about the fact that righteousness and justice are the same words can be the same words in Greek. In fact, you get the same thing in English. Tzedakah, righteousness, tzedek, righteousness or justice. 
And you can translate it either way. And in fact, depending on how you translate it, it's often influenced by your theological perspective. Some translators will prefer to use the word justify for certain theological reasons rather than the word righteous. But it gets a bit problematic because if we wanted to be consistent to show, to realize that this is the same word here and there and and everywhere, we would stay, for example, with the word righteous. But we can't do that in English because we don't have a verb form of that. One scholar suggested that we create one to righteous someone. In other words, to put them right-wise, but it hasn't come to pass yet. So we'll speak about the righteousness of God, and then we'll turn right around and speak about God justifying someone, and we'll think two different things are going on here when it's really one and the same thing. Now, what does the righteousness of God mean for Paul? This terminology, righteousness of God, is used seven times in Romans. First of all, guess what? It's multidimensional. And it is, just as I've already hinted at with justification, it is both covenantal on the one hand, and it's also judicial on the other hand. You've got these these two images in the background of the word righteousness, a judicial, a forensic image of a court, a law court, and on the other hand, you've got the image of covenant, and the two actually are related. So the forensic or judicial background to righteousness is very much emphasized by the English word justice or to justify. As the example I gave you, a police officer is involved in a shooting, there's a, there's a review, and then he's found that his action was justified in the shooting. So it has the whole legal connotation. That's why the legal aspect of this is emphasized by the word justice to justify or justification. But we run into a problem here with the word righteousness in English on, a, on another front, and that is when we say righteousness in English, I think the popular uh, hearing of that is along the lines of God's righteousness speaks of God's moral purity. It's a moral attribute of God in which he is utterly righteous and none of us are. In other words, None of us have moral purity. We're all mixtures. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short. We think of righteousness as God's absolute standard of ethics, morality, right conduct, holiness, purity, justice. And of course, none of us could ever meet up to that standard of righteousness. So somehow God's got to make us righteous, at least if not in actuality, at least as a legal fiction, he's got to impute it to us or transfer Jesus' righteousness to us or whatever. We'll talk about that. But the problem here is that the word righteousness in English often to us has moral or ethical overtones. That's the point I make. Whereas in Paul's uh, Hebraic and Hellenistic mind, The term righteousness is not primarily a moral or ethical category. It's judicial and it's covenantal, not ethical or moral primarily. It has implications, of course. And so the classic Protestant connotation here is that God's justifying action is a legal transaction in which he imputes the righteousness of God to us. And then Romans 5 through 8, 
the classic Protestant reading is that's speaking about God imparting righteousness to us. <laughs> and the word for that, we think, is sanctification. So you'll often hear in Protestant discussions that Romans 1 through 4 is about justification. Romans 5 through 8 is about sanctification. Have you heard that before? So justification in the Protestant frame of reference is taken as a legal imputing or imputation of some kind of a righteous state, a reckoning, whereas sanctification is the impartation somehow of God's righteousness into our actual lives and conduct. Not a matter of legal standing, but a matter of actual living. So all of this is with the background to us of righteousness being having these moralistic or ethical overtones. Okay, that's the main point I'm wanting you to. For us, when we say righteousness, it evokes, it connotes moral, ethical qualities. For Paul, when he says righteousness, dikaiosune, he's speaking not about moral, ethical qualities. He's speaking about covenantal issues, and he's speaking about the law court image. So again, to use this simple analogy, when the police officer's actions are evaluated and the court rules he was justified in doing what he did, his justification in taking the action he did had no bearing on his ethical or moral life. He may be a slob at home. He may abuse his wife. He may be a terrible father. He may be whatever. But in this incident that he had to shoot to save his life and he killed somebody, he's declared justified in doing that. In other words, it's a legal issue. It's not primarily an ethical or moral issue. You all getting that? Okay. What does Paul mean by the righteousness of God? Well, in the Tanakh, the Hebrew Scriptures, righteousness is primarily a covenantal term. And to be just or righteous... For God to be just or righteous means God upholds the covenant. He does right by the covenant. So when righteousness, dikaiosune, tzedek, tzedakah, is applied to God, with respect to God, for Paul, what this is meaning is Adonai's faithfulness to his covenantal promises to Israel. Adonai's faithfulness to his promises to Israel. In other words, Adonai, the Lord, does right by Israel. He promised her certain things, and now he has performed, kept those promises. So he's righteous. This is why the word righteousness, as you'll see later when I show you some verses, when we get to Romans 3, Righteousness in the Hebrew Scriptures is often parallel to the word salvation. Righteousness and salvation, righteousness and faithfulness, these are a cluster of terms that are parallel in Hebrew thinking. So when Israel calls for God to show his righteousness to them, Israel the psalmist is not calling on God to show up as the the, the judge who has an impossible standard of morality that we can't live up to. Who would call for that? Hey, somebody go get the judge and show me my failings. You don't pray that. You don't ask for that. You ask for God's mercy when it comes to those issues. But when Israel calls for God's righteousness to be shown, they're asking for God 
to show himself faithful to the covenant, to bring salvation, to bring redemption. Righteousness is God's faithful to, faithfulness to the covenant that stems from God's chesed, covenant loyalty. Or said another way, I like to put it this way, the righteousness of God speaks of God's redemptive initiative on behalf of his people based on his loyalty and faithfulness to the covenant that he made with I think the easiest way for you to grasp this is always to think of the Old English rightwise. When God acts righteously, he puts things to right. He puts them right. Now, with respect to Israel, the covenant people, to put things to right will mean to, to keep the promises he's made. To the rest of the world, to put things to right means he's got to judge the world for its wickedness. And that's why, as part of the covenantal meaning of righteousness, there's both his loyalty and vindication or justification of Israel, and there's also his decisive judgment against evil and wickedness. How about this example? When God showed his righteousness to Israel and brought them out of Egypt, he not only showed his covenant loyalty to Israel and took the redemptive initiative, but he also judged Egypt, didn't he? He hardened Pharaoh's heart. The horse and the rider he threw into the sea. God put things right. Good news to those who are in covenant, bad news to those who are. And this is one of the things that Paul's going to argue is that there's, there was still some business left undone that the Torah did not take care of. What was left undone was the decisive dealing with evil, sin, and death. In, the, in fact, the very Torah that was given for life has become to Israel the instrument of its judgment of death. And that's why Paul's going to argue, don't you boast in your Torah, because the very thing you're boasting about is the very thing that's going to show you to be inadequate. So God defeated Egypt, but there's another Egypt awaiting defeat, and that's the Egypt of evil, of death, of wickedness. And that defeat and the new exodus resulting from it only came through God's Messiah. And so the Gospel of Romans is all about God's righteousness revealed in the faithfulness of Messiah Jesus. God's redemptive initiative taken on behalf of the covenant with Israel is brought to its fullness in the obedience of faith of Yeshua, even obedience unto death. And in that death is the decisive defeat of sin and death itself. And so now the fullness of the promise made to Israel is not only for her salvation, her vindication, her justification, but now because Messiah has defeated evil, sin, and death in the world, it's also now the invitation to all the nations to enter into God's covenantal community, to be joined to his people Israel and become fellow heirs part of the commonwealth with God's covenant people. That's why it's good news first to the Jews and then to the Greek. So faithfulness, salvation, righteousness, chesed, loving kindness, these are all a cluster of words that go together in the Tanakh. You see them a lot in Isaiah, in the Psalms. You'll see them in portions of Devarim, Deuteronomy. 
So for the moment, I'm just going to define God, the righteousness of God this way, as God's redemptive initiative that springs from his chesed, his covenant loyalty, his grace, that brings deliverance and salvation. So to all the Jewish readers like Paul, for whom the Septuagint was their Bible, the Dikaiosune Theu has exactly this connotation. God's redemptive initiative in fulfillment and faithfulness to the promises that brings deliverance and salvation to his people. In other words, righteousness of God has strong covenantal overtones, and it is related not so much to some inherent quality in God as it's related to the actions of God. Not so much some inherent quality in him of moral perfection and sinlessness. It's rather related to what he does. That's why the righteousness of God in the, in the Hebrew Bible is often spoken of as the tzidkot Adonai. The tzidkot Adonai, the righteous deeds of God. The saving acts of God. That's why Dr. Lindsay used to always say that when Yeshua says, your view of righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees. What he was teaching there is that you must have the view of God's righteousness that's very expansive. It's more than just doing charity, tzedakah, almsgiving. It speaks of God's saving activity in the earth. Righteousness of God is, is parallel to the salvation of God, the saving power of God. And it is manifest in deeds, in actions. The horse and the rider, he's thrown into the sea. The righteousness of God is revealed in acts, acts that save his people, that deliver his people, that renew his people, that restore his people to right standing with him. So the covenantal or relational model of righteousness is very important to get in your mind when you read Romans. It's not principally a moral ethical connotation. It's covenantal. God, in his faithfulness to the covenant, rescues, redeems his people, restores relationships, and then his people, in response to God's redemptive initiative, must show faithfulness. That's why it's from faith to faith. From God's faithfulness, it must elicit your faithfulness. <coughs> God's people must respond in faith and faithfulness. Of course, both meanings are contained in the Hebrew word for faith, as you've heard me teach, emunah, E-M-U-N-A-H, is both faith and faithfulness. Persistence, loyalty, steadfastness. You must believe that God is and that he rewards those. So God acts faithfully, and that is to elicit the faithfulness of his people in gratitude and the obedience of faith. In other words, in response to being put in right standing with God, to be put right-wise with God, you then conduct yourself rightly. Now, to be put in right standing with God is what it means to be justified. Remember, same root in Greek. To be justified or righteous by faith means that God who keeps the covenant and one day will be the judge of all the earth, will vindicate you. He'll say, yes, you are in right standing with me. He will justify you. So, for Paul, 
when he speaks of the righteousness of God, and I'll draw this to a close with this. When Paul in Romans speaks of the dikaiosune theu, the righteousness of God, he's speaking on the one hand of God's faithfulness to the covenant, which was revealed in Messiah's faithfulness unto death on earth. On the other hand, it also speaks, it's a summons. It calls for our response as a result of his initiative of the obedience of faith. That's why Paul says <coughs> his apostleship is to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for God's name. God's name. Let's turn to Romans. And pray that we get out of Romans 1. <laughs> I told you, this stuff is so dense and wonderful. I just want to review some things as we now begin our journey through Romans. Romans 1, verses 1 through 17, states the essential theme of this letter. Don't ever forget that, please. Romans 1, verses 1 through 17, states the essential theme of this letter. It's so marvelous, and it should take on more and more meaning for you. It's the announcement of the risen Yeshua, who's Messiah, King, and Lord. It's an announcement about the one true God of Israel, who through the Messiah has disclosed his righteousness, his covenant faithfulness to Israel, his justice. But it's to the benefit and the blessing of all. And that's why it's to go first to the Jew, but also. And in that proclaiming of the good news of God to all who hear, they're joined into a united family of faith that was promised to Abraham. In verse 1 and 2, Paul speaks of himself as a slave, a servant of Messiah Jesus. There's one thing that's quite striking about this terminology. It's used by other apostles. They all think of themselves as servants or slaves of Messiah. A slave has no rights, no properties. In effect, he has no will of his own. A slave's entire calling is to do the will. I prefer the terminology slave because I think it has more impact. Servant seems a little watered down. Paul thinks of himself as a slave, and you know what? He says that's what you are. He's going to tell you that you, because of God's righteousness, his redemptive initiative in behalf of the covenant, you have been set free from slavery to sin, with the corresponding death, but you've been set free from sin, but unto what? To become slaves of God, slaves of righteousness, which leads to life. So for Paul, true freedom is actually found in authentic slavery. It's an upside-down king. He's a slave of, verse 1, Messiah Jesus. Christos, as I've already explained to you, is a transliteration into English of the Greek, Christ from Christos. But in the Greek, it's a translation, not a transliteration. It's a translation of the meaning of the word Messiah, referring to the anointed king. As a slave, Paul says, I have been set apart for the gospel of God, to the service of the gospel. And what is gospel? Remember, it's that prophetic proclamation that announcement with, imper with uh, uh, imperial or royal implication. Let's just see it again. Never forget. 
the connotation of gospel. Isaiah 40. Let's look at a couple of other passages that we didn't look at before. Isaiah 40, in verse 9. Oh, we did look at this one. Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of the gospel, the good news, the announcement. Lift up your voice, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news, the gospel. Lift it up. Don't be afraid. Announce to the cities of Judah, Hine, here, behold, is this is your God, and he will come with might. Righteousness always speaks of God's might, his decisive acts of saving, redeeming, liberating his people in faithfulness to the covenant with them. Behold, with his arm ruling for him, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Reward to the righteous, recompense judgment for the wicked. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock, etc., etc. Isaiah 52, 7. Did we look at this one? Did we? Okay. This is the background, the Hebraic background of Paul, of the gospel. Yes. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of the one who brings the gospel. And what is the gospel? It's an announcement regarding shalom, wholeness, well-being. It brings the good news of happiness. It announces salvation. And how do we come into shalom? How do we come into salvation? Only when God reigns. This is the word for kingship, the kingdom. Only in the kingdom of God. Do you recall Paul says in Romans 14, the kingdom of God is not a matter of meat or drink. What is it a matter of? Righteousness. What else? Peace. What else? Joy. Here you have it, right in Isaiah. It's God's redemptive initiative that brings you into shalom, and with that shalom comes simcha, joy in the Lord. Happiness, it's translated here in the NAS. Now, what does this gospel of God concern? Verse 3, it concerns God's Son. The term Son of God, as I've mentioned, is a term that has various applications in the Hebrew Scriptures. It can refer to an angel. It can refer to a king. It can refer to the nation of Israel. It does not necessarily have divine implications, but it does have regal overtone because the messenger that God is sending is the Messiah, who is David's son. It is held by many scholars that verses 3 and 4 of chapter 1 are actually something that Paul <coughs> did not compose, but he incorporates into his letter, that 3 and 4 were an early Christian confession that the Jewish believers, there are a number of these in the Scriptures, these confessions, these very succinct, compact, but dense revelations of truth were easy to remember, easy to recite. And it's held by many scholars that verses 3 and 4 in Paul's letter, he's actually taking from an early Christian confession that Yeshua, God's son, was born a seed of David according to the flesh, declared to be the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, namely, Yeshua, Messiah and King, his Lord. But whether Paul composed it or whether he just incorporated it, it doesn't matter. 
It's a profound synopsis of what the content of the gospel is all about. Seed of David, Messiah has royal overtones. David is a powerful code word in the Bible for Messiah and all that that implies. Son of God, he's marked out, he's set apart as God's son by the resurrection and the Holy Spirit. So what this is describing in Paul's context, writing to the Church of Rome, he's describing the Messiahship of Yeshua and that he's somehow marked out or set apart in some special way as the agent of God, God's Son. The divinity of Yeshua is not the main point of this, these two verses. The main point is that the Messiah of Israel is indeed the Lord of the world. To Israel and to Israel's hearing, to say crucified Messiah was equivalent to saying a failed. But Paul says the resurrection, and later he's going to say, God raised him from the dead. To all who believe and confess that God raised him from the dead, they're the ones who enter in. For Paul, the resurrection of Jesus, of Yeshua from the grave, marks him out, sets him apart, declares him to be the Son of God. Note that this is done by God. Let's actually look at that verse, chapter 10, verse 9. It's an important verse to note and to remember. Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth, Yeshua is Lord, and believe in your heart, what is the content of your belief? That God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. For with a heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. Right here is an example of the parallelism of righteousness and salvation. But the, just a second, just the point I'm wanting to draw your attention to now, we'll look at this verse more later, is that God raised Jesus from the grave. Remember, this is God's gospel. This is a letter all about God. Even when it comes to Yeshua, he was raised by God's power, the power of the Holy Spirit. The word Lord here is always kurios. So what Paul is going to declare, what he does declare here in 3 and 4, is that Jesus is God's Messiah, Israel's Messiah, the world's Messiah. He's King, he's Lord. And that in his resurrection from the grave was in fact the beginning of the age to come. And then Paul concludes verse 4 with the full title, Jesus, Messiah, Lord, these three words. Jesus, of course, referring to the specific human being, Jesus of Nazareth, born of Miriam, his earthly father, Yosef. Messiah speaks of Israel's hope and Israel's representative, the deliverer God promised, but the term Lord speaks of the exalted humanity of Yeshua and hints at, does not prove, but hints at his divinity. Now notice verse 5. Through whom we, Paul referring to himself, have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. This terminology, obedience of faith, is very important. Hold your finger here and let's go to 15, chapter 15, verse 18. 
for I will not presume to speak of anything except what Messiah has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed, and the power of signs and wonders in the power of the Spirit. So it's the obedience of the Gentiles that Paul's apostleship is focused on. 15 verse 18, chapter 15 verse 18. Go to the next chapter, 16. Notice verse 19. For the report of your obedience has reached to all. Therefore, I'm rejoicing with you. Go down to verse 26, talking about the revelation of the mystery of the Messiah, now manifest. 1626. By the scripture of the prophets, according to the commandments of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations. What's the word for nations? Gentiles. Sometimes here they translate it Gentiles, sometimes nations. This is the very summation of the entirety of the letter. And in this summation, Paul draws attention to the fact that the eternal God has been made known to all the Gentiles, leading to the obedience of faith. So this is a key concept for Paul, the obedience of faith. Gentiles we now know, ethne in Hebrew, I mean in Greek, Goyim in Hebrew means nation. Paul is writing this letter mostly to the Gentile believers in Rome. This is an important point that we lose sight of it, which actually should draw our attention to the fact that this is a letter uniquely pertinent to the vast majority of us because we are Gentile believers. We're non-Jews by birth. But let me just, you can make a note of these how often Paul focuses on the Gentiles. We've just seen it here in chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, calling for the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles. Notice verse 6, he says, among whom you also are. Who are the you he's talking to here? The Gentiles. You also are called of Yeshua, the Messiah. Notice verse 13. I do not want you to be unaware. Who's the you he's addressing here? It's Gentiles. Brethren, that's significant. He calls them brethren. That often I've planned to come to you and have been prevented so far so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. You also. Yes, you former pagans. You actually also are called to be of the Most High God. So you see it in 1 verses 5 and 6. You see it in 1 verse 13. Go to chapter 11, verse 13. What does Paul say? I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles. I'm speaking to you Gentiles, you Gentile believers here. Inasmuch as I am an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. We'll get to that later. But notice he's talking so often to Gentiles. And then we've just seen it in chapter 15. Verses 15 and 16 and 18, chapter 15, I've written very boldly to you on some points so as to remind you again because of the grace given me from God to be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest of the gospel of God. There again, it's God's gospel that's at work here. So that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Verse 18, I will not presume to speak of anything except what Messiah has accomplished, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles. And finally, chapter 16, 
which we saw verse 19 and also 26. He's calling for your obedience. The obedience, verse 26, of the Gentiles. It will help you to remember that Paul here is writing this mostly for the sake of the Gentile believers in Rome. They're the ones who are out of sorts with the Jews, with Israel, with Torah. They're the ones who have, t- have, have planted the first seeds of Christian triumphalism and of replacement theology. And Paul is trying to nip it in the bud. In Galatia, you have exactly the opposite situation, and that's important to recognize. In Galatia, the Gentile believers there, because of circumstances, are actually attracted to and quite eager to become full proselytes of Judaism, to become Israel. Here in Rome, it's quite the opposite. There's a disregard, even a disdain for the Jews and for Israel and for the Torah. And so Paul is writing. Now, what does he mean, the obedience of faith? This in the Greek is a compound form of the word to hear, which it, in the Greek, it's, it corresponds in the Septuagint to the Hebrew word shama, to hear, shema, because in Hebrew, the way you say to obey is to hear. What is it? Well, it's subject to different translations. Are you surprised? The NIV says, the obedience that comes from faith. Another scholar says, the obedience which consists in faith. The King James Version says, the obedience to the faith. That's just some examples. It'd be interesting to look, if we had the time, to look at all your translations and see. Because it's open to interpretation. The obedience, faith. What does it mean? Is it the obedience that comes from faith? Is it the obedience which consists in faith? Is it the obedience to the faith? Faith here being the shorthand for Christian beliefs and dogma. Now, in terms of the Septuagint, the Masoretic text, the Hebrew as well as the Greek, the obedience of faith could be translated the hearing of faith. What Paul is evoking here are the personal covenantal obligations upon those who enter into the covenant. In other words, the response to God's redemptive initiative comes in hearing, in doing. At Mount Sinai, when the Mosaic Covenant was offered to Israel, they said, we will do, we will hear all that you require. So, at the very least, we can say Paul's talking here to the, to the Gentiles regarding their appropriate response of faithfulness in response to God's faithfulness towards them. It's from faith to faith. Emunah, remember, this is very helpful always. Emunah means both faith and faithfulness, two sides of one coin. So the context here is covenantal, and it has to do with conduct. Covenantal and conduct. Paul is calling the Gentiles to the proper hearing of the gospel. The gospel is not only an announcement, it is a summons, and they need to respond appropriately to the summons. The question then becomes, what specific obedience is he looking for? When he says in uh, Galatians, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. What really counts is keeping the commandment. What commandment? Would it surprise you to learn this is the subject of extensive scholarly debate? (laughs) Obedience to faith. What faith? Well, you see the King James has kind of short-circuited the whole thing. 
because of its heavy, heavy uh, Protestant orientation to justification, and it means obedience to the faith, the faith. That avoids the whole issue of the Torah. We don't even have to ask about the Torah. We can just say, the faith. <coughs> what is it? I want to introduce you to uh, a point of view that's quite different. I'll be citing it at different It doesn't have wide scholarly support, but it certainly is a scholarly work that has received recognition and acknowledgement by a number of scholars. It's called The Mystery of Romans by Mark Nanos. It's very dense reading, very labored reading. It's not something you'd want to try to read when you're sleepy. But here's the point that, that's worth noting. I think this really is an interesting point. Nanos is arguing the following, and I, there may be some substance. Nanos is arguing <coughs> that the believing community in Rome was inextricably related to the synagogues. Now, that's not as far-fetched as you might think, because it's very hard for us in the 21st century to project back to the first century. But in fact, there were no churches, quote-unquote, church buildings. The first one wasn't even constructed until around 312, 313. The entire setting of worship for the early church was in the synagogue. You remember, even in the apostolic decree in Acts 15, it says they hear Moses read every Sabbath in the synagogue. The Gentiles who first would come to faith in Messiah were those who were already attached to the synagogue. They're called the God-fearers, like Cornelius, regularly attended synagogue, upheld ethical monotheism, gave generously to the synagogues, believed in one God, not in many, but he was not a proselyte to to Judaism. Many God-fearers were in the process of becoming eventual converts, but not it wasn't required. You could remain a righteous Gentile. When Paul goes to the synagogue to preach first thing, he's preaching, of course, to the Jews. It's the good news first to them, but he's also turning to the Gentiles, especially those Gentiles who are at the synagogue, because they're the ones who know the Hebrew Scriptures, who already believe in the God of Israel, and know about the promises regarding Messiah. And so they're going to be the most receptive audience to this God's gospel. Now, Nanos argues that what Paul is doing in this letter, he's preparing the way for his eventual visit, and that he's urging the Gentile believers in Rome to conduct themselves properly with respect to the larger Jewish community not just the fellow Jewish believers, but to the Jewish community of which they are a part. Because Paul doesn't want his future mission there jeopardized by their arrogant attitudes, anti-Judaic, maybe even anti-Semitic attitudes, which were quite prevalent in the Roman culture. Now, this will have implications for some of the later things. For example, this issue of food that we talked about. What Nanos is going to argue is that the weak versus the strong, has to do with weak in faith only with respect to faith in Messiah. That the weak in faith are is the larger Jewish community of the synagogue. They haven't yet come to the fullness of faith in Yeshua as Messiah. Whereas the strong in faith are those who have come to faith in Messiah. And what Paul is arguing here, according to Nanos, he's pleading with those who are strong in faith, who believe in Messiah, the Gentiles, 
not to offend, but to respect the, their fellow Jewish friends and brethren in the synagogue over the issue of food. In fact, Paul pleads with them, why don't you take on the attitude of Messiah? He made himself a servant to the circumcision. Now, you may have privileges. You're not obligated to, to keep all the details of the written and the oral Torah in the way they are. But Paul is in no wise demeaning their faithfulness to God. He says, what they do, they do unto God. So it's not that because they keep kashrut, their faith is weak. The issue is not really food. The issue is faith in Messiah. And Paul sees his mission being jeopardized by the attitudes exhibited by the Gentile believers in Rome. And so he's trying to <coughs> explain to them where they are in the bigger picture. And the bigger picture is spelled I-S-R-A-E. Don't boast. Humble yourselves. You don't support the root. The root supports you, et cetera, et cetera. We'll get to all of that. And so Nanos is arguing the following, just to bring it to this point. He's arguing that the obedience of faith that Paul is calling for here is two things. Paul is reminding the believers, the Gentile believers in Rome, of the apostolic decree, the Jerusalem Council, Acts 15, that when it comes to fellowship with other Jews, you must obtain, uh, abstain from any hint of idolatry and paganism. Because all the four things mentioned there relate to idolatry and relate to purity issues. Meat strangled with blood in it, sexual immorality, so forth. These are all issues of idolatry. And to have fellowship with fellow members of the synagogue, you Gentiles have to abide as a minimum. You have to abide by the standards required of righteous Gentiles a sojourner in our midst. You can go back to Leviticus 17 and 18 and see some of these connotations. When you're in that culture, you have an obligation to meet certain minimal standards that facilitate social integration. You can't come to dinner with your ham sandwich. So Nanos is going to argue that the obedience of faith that Paul is calling for here, he's reminding the Gentiles to uphold the ruling of the Apostolic Council in Jerusalem, and all the halakha, the halachot, the rulings of Jewish tradition regarding appropriate conduct for a righteous Gentile. For example, when Cornelius was in the synagogue, Cornelius would have had fellowship with other Jews. But that would have been, it would have been incumbent upon him to conduct himself in a certain way in order to have that fellowship. And so there were rulings. There, there were halakhic rulings well known in Jewish circles in the diaspora where you get this intermingling of Jews and Jews regarding <coughs> standards of <coughs> conduct for righteous Gentiles as they were called. And so this is what Nanos is going to argue that Paul is referring to over and over again. Uphold the apostolic rulings of the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. Free yourselves from any hint, any involvement with immorality and idolatry, which is rampant throughout the society. We've lost sight of, uh, because we've compartmentalized religion. The imperial cult was a way of life. If you went to the bank, you engaged in idolatry. I mean, the whole society of Rome is pervaded with paganism and worship of the emperor. His image is on the coins, the divine Augustus. 
So Paul is saying, according to Nanos, you Gentiles remember the apostolic decree that applies to you and also abide by the halakhic rulings for righteous Gentiles when they're associating and fellowshipping. It's an interesting thesis and I think has some merit. I don't think it's, it's entirely satisfactory for the bigger issue that Paul's addressing. I think Paul's call to obedience of faith is, guess what, multidimensional. But I do think this is one dimension that we haven't thought of before because we have lost sight of the fact that the early Jesus movement was inextricably entwined with synagogue. When we say church, we instinctively think of a building that you go to that's why church is a problematic word for us because of our connotations. This is a movement. This is the witnessing community of Yeshua. They worship fully as part of the synagogue. <clears throat> in fact, this is part of the problem in Galatia is the righteous Gentiles, believers in Yeshua, are claiming in the synagogues of Galatia that they are full covenantal members of Israel. And the larger Jewish community says, just a minute, we respect you as righteous Gentiles, but you're not Israel. And so let's remove all the ambiguity here. Don't you be claiming to be united with Israel as Gentiles just because you happen to believe in this Messiah fellow. Go ahead and convert. In other words, be circumcised, become a proselyte, and then we'll all be happy. We'll be happy because <laughs> we'll all be Jews, and you'll be happy because you'll have the full covenantal status. So we have lost sight and I think Nanos does a real service here in showing this web of connections that the early Jesus movement, certainly in the first century, is inseparable from the synagogue. And this is a given even in the apostolic decree. It's not discussed, it's assumed. James, on behalf of the community, says they must abstain from the following things. And all of these things have to do with social relationships, which will be hindered or blocked if you're engaged in any kind of idolatry. But then James says, without any explanation, just by way of an assumption, this is enough to say to them, do this, these minimal things, to facilitate fellowship between Jew and non-Jewish. And the rest, hey, you're hearing Moses read every Sabbath in the synagogue. You're learning the ways of Torah. We don't have to have, write a whole treatise on it, which of course many of us wish they had, but it's all within the synagogal setting. So Nanos is going to argue that the obedience of faith that Paul's calling for is faithfulness to the instructions that he has taught them and others have taught him. Instructions relating to the Jerusalem Council's decree and instructions regarding appropriate conduct of righteous Gentiles in a Jewish community. It's a thought. And I think perhaps is one dimension beyond that, and let's kind of draw this to a Beyond that, the obedience of faith, obviously, somehow for Paul, involves faith in Messiah. This is the thing that I think Nanos is weak on. Paul makes it very clear here in a number of settings. When he's calling people to faith, including Israel, he's calling them to faith in Messiah, King Jesus, to Jesus' lordship, because the imperial proclamation of his kingship is an implicit summons to obedience. The gospel compels, the response it compels is faith and faithfulness. And so Paul goes on to say that you Gentiles are the called of 
Messiah. Verse 6, among whom you also, we already know Israel is called. They're elect already. They're in covenantal standing already through Abraham and Moses. Although Paul is later going to argue as like a profitable that not all of Israel are Israel. But here he's saying, you also, you Gentiles, you former pagans, as a result of your faith in Messiah and as a result of his faithfulness unto death, you also now are among the called. You are among the called, or Messiah Yeshua. So our faithfulness answers God's call. The obedience of faith, I like to translate it, the hearing of faith. Hear, O Israel. Even when there you have, hear, O Israel, what are they asked to hear? They're asked to do certain things, to love God with all heart, soul, and strength, to teach these things diligently to your children, etc., etc. Hearing involves obedience. And what are you called to be? Let's just finish with verse 7. All, all the beloved of God <coughs> in Rome, here would be both Jew and Gentile believer. You're called to be saints. This speaks of holiness. This speaks of sanctification. And typically in the scriptures, I think maybe even exclusively in the scriptures, it's always used in the plural. Not in the way we do sometimes say that person's a real saint. It's not used that way. It's the community. Remember, Israel's to be a goy kadosh, a sanctified nation. And now Paul's saying, all of you who are beloved of God, Jew and Gentile, you are called to be holy, to be sanctified, to be part of a holy community. Because God is holy, the God who has saved you and whose gospel I'm announcing. You were pagans, but you must not conduct yourselves as pagans any longer as the people of God. Be ye holy, even as I am holy. Leviticus 11, 44. So, in view of that, Paul's conclusion to his opening is, two of the most precious gifts that we have in Messiah Yeshua, grace, chesed, and peace, shalom. And then, God, uh, then Paul offers this grace and peace jointly, inseparably, and significantly from God and from Messiah, from the Father and from the Son. In this context, whenever the early church, like Paul, joins together God the Father and His Son, Jesus the Messiah, one God, one Lord, this is very significant. On the one hand, it's unprecedented in any Jewish tradition, of bringing somebody alongside of and into the Echad of God. Only God can bless. And so it clearly has profound implications for the divinity of Jewish tradition holds fully to divine agents. Moses was a Messiah type figure. That's why Jews today believe that when Messiah comes, he'll be a prophet like unto Moses. But Moses wasn't divine. Nowhere in the Torah does it say, may God the God of Israel and Moses, his servant, bless you or give you grace and peace. Again, we just take read right past this, but this is something extremely profound that the blessings that have always gone forth in the name of God now 
consistently, almost programmatically, are going forth in the name of God as Father and in the name of His Son, Jesus the Messiah, who's Lord of the world. For the grace that the Father has shown to us has brought us the peace in the Prince of So we're off in our study of Romans on a journey. Yes! God's gospel concerning his son. You need to be saying these things. You need to get this into your heart. God's gospel concerning his son, the seed of David according to the flesh, declared to be the son of God in the power of the resurrection by the Holy Spirit. Yeshua HaMashiach Hu Adon He is Lord. Stand back, Caesar. (laughs) There's another king, and the king is coming. Amen.